When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abual Samad as I traverse the streets of Oakland. You're in Oakland. I'm in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. So we're <laughs> doing a driving podcast this time. We're going to talk about Tesla and manufacturability. Uh, some new thoughts about the Monroe uh, teardown. And uh, also some forward marketing. And then, Sam, you have a talk you're going to tack on to the end of uh, this podcast. Yep. Uh, so let's get to what we're we're driving. And since we're driving, uh, do we want to talk about what we're actually driving right now or what we just recently drove? Uh, we can do both. Um, I'll give you a little a quick rundown on what, uh, what I'm driving right now, which is the BMW i3s, um, which is the, the latest iteration of the i3 that... Um, recently, a second, am I in the right lane here? Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, Don't crash it. No, we're fine. We're fine. Uh, so yeah, the uh, the i3 is BMW's first uh, production battery electric vehicle, and uh, it's been on sale for I guess about four years now, and it's a it's a fascinating vehicle, you know, because it's. The first, you know, relatively affordable um, vehicle that has a carbon fiber structure to it. You know, this is something that, you know, prior to the i3 had been reserved basically just for supercars and, and race cars. And now, uh, you know, we've got the, um, uh, you know, this, this battery electric car. And when it first came out, it had uh, a 23 kilowatt hour battery pack. Uh, had a range of about uh, 85 miles or so, 85, 90 miles. Um, they subsequently upgraded the battery pack to, I think, 32 kilowatt hours, uh, which took the, the range up to about 125 miles. And that's what's in the, the car I'm driving right now. And just a couple of weeks ago, they announced another update to it that will put a 40 kilowatt hour pack in this thing and take it up to about 150 mile range. And when they launched that, um, that will be the end of the the other variant of the i3 called the i3 Rex, which is the range, range extended version that they have offered as an option, which had a 650cc uh, BMW Boxer motorcycle engine in the back that could um, that could uh, run a generator. So when your battery ran out, it could give you about another 90 miles of range uh, on on top of that by uh, pumping some juice into the battery. So you know, the, the i3 is, a, is an interesting vehicle. You know, it evolved out of what was originally called BMW's Megacity Project. It was Project I, uh, which started in 2007. 
Um, and the, the project, the, the basis of the project was to try to, you know, figure out what is the right car for the 21st century megacity. You know, megacities being defined as cities with populations of greater than 10 million people. And well, I mean, kind of, I know BMW makes cars, but really the right car for the 21st century megacity is no car. But all right, carry on. Well, that's true, <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, if, if you're going to have a car... You know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a car that is owned by consumers. You know, it can be a car that, you know, it can be a shared vehicle. And in fact, right. you know, that's BMW uses the i3 extensively in their um, uh, their drive now and reach now car sharing programs, uh, both here and in Europe. Uh, so, you know, the, the i3 was designed to have a relatively small footprint. So it's fairly short overall, it's tall, um, you know, which makes it feel very roomy. Um, and it's it's a five seater. Uh, it's a four door with uh, the the two rear doors are half hinged or rear hinged half doors that you know give it kind of a, a funky kind of look. Um, and you know the, it gives you easier access to the back seat, which you know frankly you know is a bit tight. You know even for the size of this vehicle compared to a Chevy Bolt, it's not as roomy as a Bolt, in the, especially in the back seat. But, you know, the, is that because the battery and all the like the range extender stuff has to be tucked behind the back seat, or is it just? Uh, how well, I mean, there's, I mean, there's not a huge amount of room behind the back seat anyway. You know, the battery's all under the floor. Okay. Um, it's just, you know, it's just that it's kind of short. You know, it's kind of a, a strange packaging job they've done on it. But you know, overall, it's not bad. You know, it's probably not something that you want to, you know, regularly carpool with. You know, four four or five people in. Uh, but you know it's fine for kids. You know, ki you know, and then shorter adults will have no problem back there. And you know, frankly, I, you know, I'm five eleven. I can sit set the front seat to where I would normally be, and I can sit beside behind myself um, without you know without my knees touching. I just don't have a whole lot of extra clearance. So, yeah, this just feels cramped. But yeah. that you said it's fascinating, and I, I'll agree. You know, the, everything I've read about the i3 and, and you know when I've had a chance to look them over it's definitely a very sort of sideways look at the car on purpose and that's kind of what we need to get us to the next step of of automobiles um and it's really it's pretty exotic for for yeah. something that's kind of you know, not it's quietly exotic yeah, I mean, you know, for a car that has a starting price in the low $40,000, you know, it's it's surprisingly exotic, frankly. You know, like I said, you know, it's got a carbon fiber structure uh, that makes it relatively light, uh, very strong. Uh, you know, I mean, this thing, you know, you never hear any squeaks and rattles out of it, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it's got the rear hinge doors and there's no B-pillar. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very solid feeling car. And when you look at it, it's got uh, the... Uh, uh, the the wheels are fairly tall. I think they're 19 or 20 inch wheels, but the they're fairly narrow. Uh, you know, so you get surprisingly, uh, and they're staggered tires. You know, so the front tires are a little skinnier than the rears because it's a rear wheel drive car. Uh, but it's you know, they the making the tire the wheels taller and narrower actually reduces the aerodynamic drag, uh, but at mm. the same time, uh, you know, it still gives enough footprint. Uh, to give it decent traction, so it actually handles surprisingly well. You know, I, uh, when I after I, right after I picked it up yesterday um, from the airport, I took it. You know, took quick spin up uh, uh, Skyline Boulevard. You know, which is very narrow, twisting mountain road uh, in the in the in, you know above Silicon Valley, and 
you know, it's it's great fun to drive up there. And, you know, the other interesting thing that BMW does with their EVs is, uh, you know, right from the beginning, you know, their first EV, their first two EVs were not production models. They were pilot programs that led into help them develop this vehicle. Uh, and they started in uh, 2008 with the, uh, the Mini E project, uh, which was an electric version of the Mini of that, of that era. Uh, which you know had a, a similar kind of uh, drivetrain layout, you know, battery, um, elect rear electric motor, and uh, it, uh, it. When I first drove it at the 2008 LA Auto Show, which oh, man, it's 10 years ago now. <laughs> when, We're getting old. <laughs> yeah, I know. Speaking, speaking of which, as, as I'm pulling up to this uh, red light, I look over and there's actually an old classic Mini parked across the street from me here. It's amazing how tiny that little car is. The original Austin Mini. You know, compared, oh yeah, <laughs> compared, even compared. You know, I mean, but you look around. You look at a mini today. You know, compared to the current state of the art of vehicles, and it's tiny compared to today's vehicles. But it's huge compared to this little mini I'm seeing right now. Oh uh, yeah, the, any, yeah. Anyway, anyway, the 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 <laughs> thing that I first noticed when I drove the mini E was that it had very aggressive regenerative braking. You know, they they tuned it so that you can essentially do one pedal driving with it which is something you know i've said before when i've drove the bolt and some other cars something i actually really like in evs um and it's great for city driving because you know you don't you're not when you're in stop and go traffic you don't have to constantly move your foot back and forth between the accelerator and brake you know you just modulate one pedal and it's it's a much more relaxing feel uh and i really like that and you know, unlike some of the other EVs that are out there, like the Bolt and like the uh, the Nissan Leaf, the current generation Nissan Leaf, there is no option for a light regen mode. You know, it's you get heavy regen and that's it. You know, it's BMW's way or the highway, uh, which is which is fascinating. But it worked. You, you know, have to respect. Got to respect that, right? That's yeah. No, I, I like it a lot. I'm, I, I I really do like this car. You know the, uh, you know I think the. The only thing that, you know, I think that's a little lacking about it, you know, always has been the range, you know, has been on the short side, you know, and I think for its price point, especially, I mean, it's getting better now with the new version that's going to have a 150 mile range, um, but it's, you know, it's still, it's not the greatest range, but um, for something you're going to drive primarily around town, you know, as, as an urban vehicle, it, it makes a lot of sense and it, it just works really well. Right. If you're putting on 150 miles in an urban setting, it, it, that's a lot. That's that's yeah. more than a day's worth of driving. If you're if you're doing that much, you're you're a commercial driver. Yep. <laughs> and that's um, so maybe the i3 is not the right car for you in that setting. But uh, it's not just the battery too. Like it sounds like one of the ways they're boosting range with the i3 is increasing the size of the battery pack. And as battery technology gets more power out of smaller uh, footprint that'll continue to improve but also you know the motor tech i'm sure bmw is looking at that because you know that's what they do with the gas engines too i'm sure they're looking to continually push the the motor tech to be more efficient more powerful uh all of those things that we like out of gas engines just now now they need to do it out of the, the electric motors as well that's right and you know and also improving things like the power electronics efficiency you know which does the that's what does the conversion between ac and dc as you go back and forth from the the motor to the battery uh you know because the battery obviously stores direct current and you know uh, direct current motors are not as efficient as alternating current so that's what they use on the the motors 
so you know you have that going that back and forth and you know there's always some losses in that conversion and so you know as power electronics systems get better then they you know that improves the overall efficiency and that's one of the advantages that um, that that is one of the things that Tesla has really done very well uh, with their vehicles is the uh, you know their power electronics design uh, is very efficient and so that gives them some advantages that uh, that other manufacturers don't have yeah you know, as, as those other manufacturers enter the market more uh, they they become more committed to it that's going to be interesting to watch um, because those are the areas where you can you can get immediate improvement. You don't have to wait for the battery miracle to happen. <laughs> that, exactly. You know, may, may or may not. Uh, you've got to you've got to fix the things that uh, you can fix right now. So those are going to be the, the things where we see breakthroughs. I think yep. that's my prediction anyway. Um, so all right. So the i3 gets a, a positive positive rating from you for Absolutely. tooling around in the city. Yeah. It's actually the second uh, EV in a row that I've been driving because before I, before I left uh, for this uh, West Coast trip, I was uh, driving around uh, Michigan in the uh, Hyundai Ionic electric, uh, which is you know one of the three different variants of the Ionic that are currently available, and they, you can't actually buy one in Michigan, uh, but they had one in the press fleet, and so uh, you know this is uh, you know this is the battery electric version and. and you know, uh, Hyundai. You know, with the Ionic, when they when they designed when they developed the Ionic, you know, it was before they knew about cars like the Bolt and you know longer range um, version of the Leaf that's coming, and they they uh, decided to optimize it for efficiency, and so as a result, they um, they uh, they went with a smaller, lighter battery pack. Uh, it's only a 27 kilowatt hour battery pack. It uh, uh, gives them about 124 mile range, and with that, you know, it's it's actually one of the most efficient EVs you can get right now. But you know, again, like like this i3, you know, it's it's going to be limited in the use cases that it's good for. But you know, as yeah, but that's a lot of range out of a good. yeah, that that's a lot of range out of a battery that size too. Um, yeah, especially just you know, sort if you of live in California where you know you don't. You're not using the heater all the time, things like that. Um, you know, it, it works very well for those kinds of applications. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's probably that's got to be the best version of the Ionic. Uh, I think that when you when you make when you take a car and you make it electric, it, it becomes great. When you make it a hybrid, it's less great. When yeah. you make it gas, it's great. <laughs> but you know, so it's it's like uh, this automotive horseshoe the theory. The, the plug-in hybrid version of the Ionic is actually pretty good too. It, you know, it it gives you you know all, most of the benefit of the uh, the hybrid of the battery electric, um, but it get, also gives you that extra flexibility for driving you know wherever, whenever you want to you know without having to plan so much for charging. You know, it it's got you know yeah. 27 Ooh. miles of. Uh, electric range, which is you know more is enough for most people's you know daily urban commute uh, or suburban commute for that matter, uh, and then you know it just keeps on going as a as a hybrid after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's you know we've talked about how the the kind of range anxiety thing is is largely solved and largely just a an opinion or like a a phobia versus an actual problem for many car drivers but 
uh, you know, that's that's something that the, the plug-in hybrids solve pretty well, and they give you mostly electric uh, if your commute is within sort of the parameters of that normal everyday commute. So that like, that's a plus, but just a pure electric is, I'm always shocked at how serene that experience is. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you're in the i3 right now, it's it's quiet, you know? Yeah, it's, it's just, just sort of it's calm. incredibly quiet. You know, I, 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 do, I do miss the sound of a good engine, but you know, the reality is most cars don't have great engines anyway. So, you know, in, in most cars, most mainstream cars that you drive, you're not, you're not missing anything. Uh, it's only, you know, when you're driving performance cars. But you know, I, I, you know, when I'm, you know, commuting, I'm not going to be uh, taking advantage of that anyway, so it, it doesn't bother me that much. You can um, just connect your phone via Bluetooth and play uh, recordings of yeah, exactly. car sounds. Yeah, you can, you can play a recording of an M5 while you're driving the i3. Yeah, that works. I mean, it's BMW. Don't they do it's that anyway? Anyway, you know. <laughs> that's, yes, that's right. It's the M5 synth patch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm actually I stayed all gas uh, over the last couple of weeks. I am right now. I'm in a Lexus LS 500 F Sport, which is a lovely update of the classic LS, you know, uh, recipe. Uh, it looks really good. It has it that fantastic. modern, yeah, uh, has that modern Lexus sort of design language. It's just really, really sharp. It does have the big grill, but it, it works here. Uh, you know, overall, this is a nice big sedan, you know, the, the aircraft carrier size uh, four-door. Uh, and the interior design is fantastic. I love the interior design. You know, the F-Sport has uh, sort of like metal inserts on the doors or uh, around the, the door handles and the, each of the armrests kind of floats and they're backlit. There's just a lot of drama visually in the car. Um, there's, there's a set of like metal ribbing on the dashboard all the way across that makes up the vents. It looks like an old, you know, like hi-fi audio component. It's just, it's really, really pretty and it's not anything that is like old or traditional you know it's it's definitely something that they came up with this century you know it's it's nice in that sense um the engine is plenty powerful uh it, it does not have a problem getting it out of its own way it's the first ls i've driven that's not really terribly floaty or just sort of doesn't feel like it wants to play along uh, you know, like right now I'm driving in eco mode because we're, we're podcasting and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you can put it in sport or sport plus. It has those modes and it, it gets a little bit more aggressive in, in how it responds. Although at the end of the day, it's still an LS. So there's still, you know, throttle tip in is, is kind of soft. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to be playing racer, get an IS <laughs> and, and have fun with it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a... Yeah, the LC Coupes. I mean, Lexus is just, they've, they've hit a stride over the last few years where the design language has really come together. The cars are really beautiful. They're clearly well put together. Uh, and they, they drive well. You know, they're infusing their cars. They're doing what Toyota's doing as well. It's just putting some more passion back in the cars. And, you know, this is a, it's a gray car on the outside, but it's got this lovely red seats. And, uh, you know, so there's... There's some spirit here. It's not trying to to blend in too much, and I, I really love that because I think that's one of the things that it, Lexus was dinged for so long for being uh, overly conservative or 
just, I don't want to say bland, but just so highly refined that uh, they, don't, they don't really get your, your blood flowing enough. And, and this, this is not that kind of car. Um, it, it's a car that makes a visual statement. It's a car that makes a performance statement. And uh, that's, that's fantastic to see from Lexus. Uh, you know, one of the things that gets my, my I don't want to say adrenaline, but my, it gets my blood flowing in the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> is they've they've come up with a new control scheme because every you know auto company does this now. So instead of their little remote touch interface mouse thing, they've got a, a pad now. And I, this is the first Lexus I've I've used that has this. Uh, and so you've got to do a lot of swiping to get back and forth around the infotainment system. And it, it can be really tedious for simple things. Like, you know, it definitely keeps the button count down, but to get back and forth between, say, the phone or the nav and, like, climate adjustments and just to turn seat heaters on and stuff like that, it takes an inordinate amount of, just, like, swiping and scrolling and clicking with this thing. It's very distracting. And I, I don't like it at all. I, I will try the voice commands and see if that smooths things out um but again like it's it's really hard to to do this and do it well and bmw is is one of the few that has been at it long enough that they've gotten over everybody hating their system and they've fixed it to a large degree lexus isn't there yet and that so that's a shame yeah uh, kind of i've i've driven several vehicles with that touchpad several lexus vehicles with that touchpad system and it's a terrible interface. I, I actually kind of liked the previous one, you know, that was the stubby mouse-like joystick thing. Um, you know, I, once you got used to how it works, you know, it was actually pretty good. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I like, you know, the haptic feedback that it provided. And the trackpad also provides haptic feedback. But because, like you said, you have to keep swiping around, it's, it's, a, it's a relative motion rather than, it's, it's different from the system that Acura put in the new RDX, which is an absolute touch system. So wherever you touch it, you know, corresponds to the same location on the screen. Uh, whereas this is more like a computer trackpad, uh, but it's, it's less precise, you know. Uh, you know, if you've, if you've ever used uh, a Mac, uh, you know, a MacBook, you know, they have the best <laughs> trackpads in the business. And you know they, they track really well and have great resolution. Most Windows machines are not nearly as good, and the the, the Lexus trackpad is far worse than any computer I've used. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very uh, unresponsive. You know, it takes a lot of swipes, and because it sticks, there's, you can have three different things going on in the screen from you know left, center, and right. So to get back and forth between those, sometimes you got to give it a little extra nudge or a larger swipe or something, and it just it won't go. And yeah, you know, you're trying to do this while you're driving. It's one thing when you're stopped, but yeah, it's it's really. Uh, I hope that they redo this soon because it it really does mar an otherwise fantastic car. You know, I mean, this is this is S Class Seven Series kind of competition that you're looking at, and and those cars. I don't really like Command as much, but those cars do it better, and that's the kind of stuff that is the deciding factor now in in this class of car. I mean, they all drive well in their own right. They're slightly different. You know, the, the LS500 certainly feels lighter on its feet than the last BMW or Mercedes of this class that I tried. So I'm impressed with that, too. Uh, you know, it, it feels like a proper 
proper sedan that can can be uh, wrung out a bit. Uh, so it's it's just fascinating to see where Lexus has gone. Uh, they they used to have better tech than the Germans in some way, and now, or, or at least more reliable tech. And now, it's kind of the other way around. You know, easier to use stuff. Is, and and iDrive is not unsophisticated. You know, especially when you get into a seven series, you can you can have different temperatures coming out of all the vents and stuff. It, uh-huh. it gets to be super uh, super intricate. So um, for the uh, for the LS. I was in the new Forester too, the new Super Forester. That thing. Have you driven it? I have not yet driven it. No. What'd you oh my think? goodness, it's so good. It's it's just it's solid. It's really refined. It's quiet. Uh, they did a fantastic job updating the Forester because you know the Forester had it wasn't. I wouldn't say there were rough edges, but it had that Subaru personality. Uh, <laughs> and it still you know it has some of that Subaru. It felt like to something it. that came out of the forest, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It kind of crawled out of the ooze. Uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's really, really good. Uh, the the two-liter engine, I think it was the two-liter, uh, and the CVT are plenty powerful. It moves with authority. You know, it's the same kind of comments I had for the Ascent. Uh, I was just impressed how they got that much performance out of that small of a powertrain um, in both cases. Uh, and... You know, it, it feels really solid going down the road. It drives really well. It handles nicely. But the all-wheel drive actually, you can feel it kind of kicking in and, and rotating you around corners uh, if you know what you're you're looking for. Um, so that's nice. It just you know it has that touch of WRX in it. Uh, it, and it looks good. It's well finished inside. You know, all the things that we've consistently complained about for Subarus, they have figured out now how to make those uh, go away. You know, the Forester. I had I really I couldn't find a flaw in it. Uh, it was, it's just that good. And, uh, I was very impressed with it. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah. You can, you can never have too many really good products in the segment. No, no. Well, and Subaru has been growing so aggressively too. They, they have to almost put out, uh, really bigger steps now, I guess, in, in larger increments. They have to improve more with every generation or, you know, they're, because they're a small manufacturer, their, their lead's going to get nibbled. You know, they've been growing at a, at a you know, very fast pace over the last few years. Um, so you've got to do something to maintain that edge. That's right. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it, it's great. Uh, I've, I really liked it quite a bit. Um, and, you know, to the point where I was so impressed with the CVT and how it's, it amplifies the torque of that, that engine and is nice and smooth. It's generally not buzzy like CVT. It doesn't do that motorboat thing much. Um, right. Yeah. So, so what, they, do they do they do like a, a Nissan style control where it kind of simulates a conventional transmission, or does it just do yeah. more gradual, you know, type of uh, keeping it within the optimal range? Oh, so usually it's just nice and smooth, and it it changes ratios without any kind of steps or anything, and you don't notice it. When you do something like merging or accelerate hard, it's going to go. It'll rev up, and then it'll just ratchet back a few hundred RPM, and it'll do that to simulate gear shifts. And uh, the only time you feel that is when you're driving a little bit more aggressively. Other than that, it's just quiet and smooth. Okay. All right, well, let's move on to uh, some topics. All right, so one of the things we've been accused of is hating on Tesla, and while we don't hate them, uh, we, there's certainly problems that we've pointed out that uh, restrict their ability to turn a profit. 
And uh, Monroe, Sandy Monroe and Monroe Associates uh, also pointed out some of those issues. They, they had a Tesla or two that they tore down and they looked at how it's built, uh, Model 3 specifically, they looked at how it's built uh, from all different angles, you know, uh, just the body structure and the, the power electronics like we were talking about earlier and the motors themselves. Um, and they, they came to a few conclusions. Uh, and, and one of the conclusions that was really interesting to me is that the potential for profit uh, with the, the Model 3 is, is really high. And who knows if they're meeting it, uh, but they could actually uh, make quite a bit of profit off this car if they could sort out some of the problems. Um, I'm going to hand it over to you because you probably understand a lot of these issues way better than I do. Yeah, so, you know, their their original report that they published a few months ago, you know, where, where they talked about that potential for profit was largely based on, you know, their analysis of the bill of materials, you know, the, the parts going into it, you know, how much, you know, how much the, the cost of the components was relative to the, the the sales price of the car, and based solely on that, um, you know it can't. You know they estimated I think like a twenty nine percent potential twenty nine percent margin profit margin on the thing. But you know the the problem in the the car business, as well as in most businesses, is it's never quite as simple as that. And you know they've continued doing their analysis, additional analysis after they finished that report. And you know, did some some more detailed looks at some of the components, and you know what they have come up with a, a subsequent an update on that uh, original report, and you know the, they looked at some of the things like how the body structure is put together, and you know that they you know based on that assessment they um, they realized that you know Tesla is actually missing out on a lot of a lot of the potential profit. Uh, that might be available uh, in this vehicle because of the way they're building it. You know, one you know particular highlight you know that uh, they that was the uh, one of the in the wheel wells. You know, if you yeah. look at most <laughs> modern vehicles, wow, there's this drone buzzing overhead right now. Uh, anyway, if you look at sorry, got distracted there for a moment. Um, they're watching you, look, you. Yeah, if you if you look at most modern vehicles. The, uh, from mainstream manufacturers, you'll find that one of the things that they've learned how to do over the last 15, 20 years is really do a lot more integration of components and reduce the total number of parts that have to go together, in, particularly in the body structure and the body panels. So on a lot of cars now, you'll see that um, like the full body side of the, right. the car will be stamped as one single piece. You know, right, so that's everything... that's not that, that that's a more modern thing too. Like that just started in the '90s. Yeah, uh, or, where you had actually in many cases even in the 2000s. You know, so right. basically the entire body side from the front fenders to the tail lights will be stamped as a single piece of from a single piece of steel. So you don't have to and that makes all them parts and get them all lined up and weld them and braze them, you know, to get it all nice and smooth. It's just one piece that that attaches to the the understructure. And, yeah, and it makes cars nice and rigid. It makes them nice uh, because and rigid. Uh, makes them more, you know, gives you more consistent quality, uh, better finish on the on the panels and, you know, the that rigidity also means that you have, you know, that it's quieter. You have better NVH, um, and there, there's less places, uh, for example, to get corrosion. You know, because every time you're yeah. joining panels, that's, you know, that's those are potential corrosion points. And you know, and what, so the, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, what Monroe found, you know, when they continued their analysis is looking at, you know, they highlighted, you know, in the wheel wells, you know, where there's multiple individual pieces of metal that are welded together and, and spot, you know, spot welded and riveted together, you know, and this is, this is just an insane way to build this thing. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, there's like eight pieces in the wheelhouse. And I, it just looked like they built it from scraps. They had laying around. I was, I was astounded by that. Because that's, like you said, that's usually a single stamping. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, you know, that, that adds to the manufacturing complexity. Um, it makes it harder to get, you know, consistent fit and finish on it. And, um, you know, for, especially, you know, when, with what uh, Tesla was trying to do with trying to automate as much of the production process as possible, you know, that makes it a lot harder to do that when you have so many individual little pieces. If you can reduce the number of pieces you have to join together, it makes it a lot easier to automate those processes. So how does that happen though? Like Tesla definitely has people on staff that were, you know, tasked with designing the body and making it, you know, mass production ready. It seems like something went awry there, though, uh, that either the person they had doing that or the team they had doing that uh, wasn't up to the task or some other reason for the, the way it is. Uh, how, do, how does that happen? You know, it, it, it's hard to say without being on the inside and, and knowing, you know, what, what really went, you know, who, set, who made what decisions. But given, you know, Elon's Elon Musk's propensity for control and micromanaging, you know, we've you've got to assume that you know a lot of it was based on decisions that came from him you know and trying to respond to things that he was demanding and you know it turned out that you know this was the only way they could do it and also hit their timelines you know because one one of the one of the things about you know doing it in in the way that I described where um, you know it's it's a more um, more integrated approach is that it actually you know, it takes more time up front to do that. You know, there's there's a lot of engineering effort required uh, to to do all the analysis of those various components and really understand, uh, you know, how how it's all going to come together. And you know, designing designing the dies for stamping those parts is is a more complex process. So you know, that means that. You know, that, that means that your your initial product development time is going to be a little bit longer. But then once you get there, once you once you've done all that work, then it's actually a lot um, uh, a lot easier to build it. So you can you can build it with greater consistency. Um, but you just ha you have to make that upfront investment. And if you look at you know what what Tesla did you know in the course of developing the Model Three, they seem to go. Uh, they seem to rush through a lot of the steps that you would normally do in a development process. And as a result, uh, you know, I think what happened was perhaps because of the compressed timeline that, that Musk put on him and said, we've got to have this car in production by such, you know, by the end of 2017 or the middle of 2017. And I think that there just wasn't time for them to, to do that proper engineering you know, to, to make the, to do the work required to actually achieve what needed to be done. And so they, they kind of had to, you know, do this ad hoc approach of, of putting it together. Yeah, well, there's uh, the guy out here in Massachusetts who is sort of the rogue Tesla mechanic. I forget his name off the top of my head, but one of the things that uh, he has said is that every car he's taken apart has been different. 
you know, and, yeah. you know he's basically rebuilding Model S's. And so that's really like that's a line that's been up and running for a while now. They shouldn't be different really at all. Yeah, you know, and this this is a problem that, you know, the auto industry had back in the early 20th century when it was still young, when, when we were just learning how to build cars. You know, it's like all the parts, that you, we didn't have standardization of parts, and, you know, a lot of the parts were handmade, and if you had to get your car serviced, you know, in 1910, um, then you, you had to... Uh, you know, oftentimes the parts had to be custom made or custom fit to a particular car because you couldn't just take another part, you know, off another car and, and swap them around. And this was a breakthrough that Henry Leland, the founder of Cadillac, made, yep. I think it was in 1912. 1912, um, they, won the, they won the trophy because yeah. that's the standard of the world. That's where that came from, yeah. It, exactly, you know, and, you know, the the... The breakthrough that he made was, you know, in how they manufacture parts and standardizing parts manufacturing so that every part was the same, uh, you know, and to demonstrate, you know, that what they were doing, you know, they actually took, I think, two or three Cadillacs and tore them completely down, you know, to, to all the component parts, mixed up all the parts, and then put them back together, and they all worked. You know, and that was that was the key to demonstrating the, the the viability of this concept. And ever since then, this is what every mass manufacturer has done. And if you're trying to mass manufacture cars, and no two cars are the same, you know, and you're constantly making changes to them. You know, this this is one of the reasons why um, manufacturers try to minimize the number of running changes that they do to vehicles when they're in production. You know, this, this is one of the things that, that Tesla has touted is, oh, you know, we don't wait for model years to, to make updates, to, to make changes in the cars. Uh, you know, as soon as something's ready, we go ahead and we, we roll it out into production, which up to a point is fine, you know, if you're doing relatively few cars. But if you're trying to mass manufacture cars for the, you know, for the mainstream market, that's not really a very good way to do it because now, you know, you you never know, you know, on any given because you don't know what model year is or when in a model year something was built, you know, you don't necessarily know what parts need to go on there. And this, I think, is one of the things that's contributed to the problems that they've had with providing service parts. You know, if you if you go to, you know, if your if your car needs to be fixed and you take it to a Tesla service center, oftentimes you'd be waiting weeks or months for parts because they don't know what has to go on there. And then trying to get the right parts, you know, is just a complete nightmare from from the factory. Um, yeah. These seem like basic things that uh, should have been considered, and they, they should know this. They should have this down. You know, they had the Roadster, they had the Model S, they had the Model X. Now we're into the Model Three. Like they're four models in. This this is not stuff that that uh, they should be learning. Um, do you think some of these frustrations led to who who did they just lose? They they just lost their head of like uh, their, their VP of manufacturing, uh, Gilbert right. uh, Passan, I think was his name. Uh, he so did he left. leave because he was frustrated, or <laughs> uh, they don't say? You know, they they declined yeah. to comment on personnel matters, um, other than acknowledging that yes, he did leave. Um, so we don't know if he if he quit or was fired. Um, what we do know is he, he actually. <laughs> He actually came to Tesla from Toyota in 2010, so uh, I, I don't know his full uh, work history, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you know if he 
uh, was on staff at Numi, you know, which is the, what the the Tesla fa the Tesla Fremont factory before Tesla got it from Toyota. It was the Numi factory where they built. It was the joint venture with General Motors where they built, right? Um, you know, various Corolla, various uh, iterations of Corolla and Pontiac Vibe and uh, Chevy Nova and a few others uh, over the years, and. Um, you know that was you know part of the the purpose of of that joint venture was for GM to learn the Toyota manufacturing system, you know lean manufacturing. And they did. Yeah. Oh, they definitely they, did. It, uh, so and it seems like that was one of the other things that stood out in uh, the I think it was a Bloomberg article I just read about the Monroe uh, teardown. Um, they've got like ten thousand people, and Tesla does at that Numi facility or that Fremont facility. And that's about twice as many as ever worked there in the Numi days and, and you know, Fremont before that when it was probably one of the worst plants in GM's uh, roster. Uh, you yeah, would there, think that they under Numi, it had about 4,500 employees building cars there. Right. So you would think that, like, what they've got... So they've got people there. They don't have a problem throwing people at the problem. The problem is that production manufacturing people aren't going to be able to solve the problems they should have thrown engineering people at and engineering hours at. Is, is, like, it seems like that's, that's the issue. Is there's a lot of people there, but the cars themselves are not designed well enough to go together. You know, the body gaps and stuff like that, that all speaks to just like there's, there's just fundamental issues there. And, and um, I thought, you know, that was, that's, that's the problem. And, and Monroe, you know, Sandy Monroe, zeroed in on that too he said this body is killing them yeah yeah because you know there's a lot of other things that they do really well you know they the 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 power electronics and their motor design are very good you know they're they're state-of-the-art you know not not necessarily you know hugely better than everybody else but they're they're absolutely you know among among the best out there and you know if but if you can't if you, if you can't build a good body to put it into to put those parts into then you know you're going to end up losing. Yeah, he did say. I think the the quote that stood out to me about the motor was like everybody should be benchmarking it. It's that good. You know, it's just it's it's light, it's powerful, um, it's it's efficient. Uh, and the way they spread the electronics throughout the car uh, or on you know various modules, it's, it's something that you see more in like consumer goods and uh, you know. That's a Silicon Valley thing that that actually works well. You know, we bag on Silicon Valley for their their hubris and their arrogance sometimes, but there are there are things you can you can learn from those guys and, and the the uh, electrical and and information architecture of the Model S apparently was was pretty impressive. Yeah, you know, one one of one of the other things that is distinct about the uh, about the, te the, the current Tesla products is Tesla was the first manufacturer to really go with. You know, a lot more centralized computing uh, in the vehicle. You know, uh, rather, you know, the the traditional, you know, in most uh, traditional cars, you know, at, over time, you know, as we've added new features like ABS and stability control and adaptive cruise control and lane keeping systems, all of these, you know, have been added piecemeal to the vehicles, and they often come from different vendors, and so as a result, you know, you have this. You know, each one comes with its own electronic control unit and its own software. Uh, you know that you know they, they can talk to each other and they can share some information, but it's it's a much more complicated system. That's why you have you know seventy five to a hundred discrete computers in a modern car. But then 
uh, you know, that they're, they're not necessarily doing anything more than what you find in a traditional car or, or in, a, in, a, in a modern car. You know, so, uh, you know, you've got all these, these tiny little computers, whereas Tesla went with just a handful of more powerful computers, you know, and consolidated everything. And that's, that's the direction that manufacturers are going with next generation vehicles is that, you know, domain controller architecture, you know, with more, more centralized computing. But, you know, it's, it's going to take a while to get there. And that's well, I wonder, the- if, I, I wonder if some of that having individual modules that have the, the uh, electronics in them or the, the control units in them you know, the old way is kind of a holdover from, from a design for production standpoint, right? Like you, you're sourcing your ABS modules from Bendix. Your, your, your fuel injection system comes from from Bosch or from Regina, uh, and those go together. You can have either or in the car. You know, you could have a, a, like a Bendix ABS, or you could have a Continental ABS. At the end of the day, they both fit where they're supposed to fit, and they do the ABS job. But you got two different suppliers, and you don't have a problem with logistics or you know slowing down your line because you've got that one supplier who can't get in part. You know, and it's. I wonder if that's sort of why other manufacturers have been a little slower to go that way, where Tesla, uh, their logistics chain is, is clearly a little bit different, and um, th- the way that they have dealt with suppliers is also different, and, and they seem to be a little bit more committed. They don't, they don't seem to have as much of an issue. If they're going to have one supplier for something, that's, that's okay. That's the one supplier that makes a thing perfectly the way they want. Yeah, it's um, that's part of it, but um, you know, you typically don't find a lot of dual sourcing of those t- sorts of systems. You know, more it's more the comp- commodity parts. You know, like you know the nuts and bolts, the you know th- yeah. the electronically controlled stuff. You typically don't have dual sourced on any particular vehicle platform. It's usually just going to be one vendor. But certainly, you know, the, the systems you know ha- are designed that way. But actually, in, when you talk about design for manufacturing. Um, that's, that actually kind of runs counter to that argument uh, because when you do have all of the stuff scattered all over the car, it does make the, the electrical architecture more complex. You know, the, the wiring harnesses are going to be more complex because you've got to run power to more different places and things like that. Uh, and finding places to package all these ECUs becomes more complex, whereas if you just have a couple of larger ECUs, it is easier to package. Um, but what, what it does do is it gives manufacturers some flexibility in offering some of those features as options. And for customers that opt, that, that opt out of certain features, they don't install those parts in the car. And that's another area where uh, that kind of hurts Tesla because what they tend to do is just put everything in the car. You know, so autopilot is being the prime example. They put the autopilot hardware in every single car they build. You know, and then you know, it's up to the consumer to decide: Do I want to pay the five thousand dollars for autopilot, or eight thousand if I want, you know, full self-driving someday, maybe, possibly, never. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you know, Tesla has already sunk that cost into the car uh, without knowing, wh- you know, whether they're going to get revenue from any given customer. And well, but yeah. so, like, how different is the autopilot, you know, hardware versus? Uh a non-autopilot car, right? Like, there's not a ton of difference these days, right, between what the base model is going to have and what the autopilot is at that point, right? It's You've got some, uh, some well, ABS you've got, actuators. And, you, 
Uh, electric uh, yeah, steering. I mean, the, the, actu the actuation system is going to be, at least in Tesla's case, is, is the same. Uh, because they don't they don't include any of the redundancy that you should really be building in with those kind of systems. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Um, you know, I mean, they, they kind of do it on the cheap. You know, so you've got you know eight cameras in there as opposed to one that you would find in most cars. Um, and you know, but there's only there's still only one radar, but there is a more powerful computer, um, significantly more powerful than what you'll typically find. You know, for running the stability control or adaptive cruise control systems on most vehicles. Uh, it's an NVIDIA-powered system, uh, which, you know, which works really well, um, you know, to the, to the degree, you know, up to a point. But it's not, it's actually not powerful enough to do a full self-driving system. And, you know, NVIDIA will tell you that, you know. So that's why uh, Tesla has already upgraded it once. They did an upgrade uh, last year when they launched the Model 3 and went to a more powerful one. So, you know, when, when they launched uh, Autopilot version 2 in 2016, they said, this is going to be all the hardware we're ever going to need to do full self-driving. Uh, and it was a lie then, and it's still a lie, because, uh, you know, they, they had, they've already upgraded it once, and they're going to upgrade it again before they do, you know, with, the, with their own in-house developed system, um, if and when they ever launch full self-driving. So I guess the only positive I can see from making every car have the same stuff and just turn it on with the software switch is that uh, you have reduced production variants. <laughs> They're all the most in, expensive. In, in, in theory, <laughs> at least, yes, that is true. Yeah. You, you have reduced the number of buildable combinations. But, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is despite doing that, they still can't seem to reduce the actual variability in their build quality. So, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting to watch. You know, I do hope that they they get it together. I was I didn't know that um, the the guy who left had been uh, with Toyota because uh, if there's anything that could help Tesla right now is is a good dose of the Toyota way. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Um, well, that's something that's more in your ballpark. Yeah, I was gonna say let's let's move on. Let's crap on someone else. Uh, <laughs> So, I thought this was interesting. Uh, the news came out the I guess it was last week that um, Ford has decided to, to shift away from its uh, long-serving agency WPP, and they've they moved some of their business uh, ad, ad agency for those that, adage, that don't right. uh, follow this stuff very closely. And come on, why did why why would nobody follow this stuff? Is this the most fascinating thing? Agency people were just were wonderful. <laughs> uh, but anyway. The right before they uh, announced this, they also uh, announced a new campaign um, that is called, uh, I believe it's Ford Proud, which, uh, you know, I was a little skeptical of, but it, it sounds like it's going to be, um, you know, it, it's, it's not just like cynically uh, sort of hanging their hat on uh, Americana and the, uh, the the sort of uh, Boston Strong or um, you know you know the, the tag the sort of slogans that come out of disastrous and terrible events and that was that was what I immediately thought. It sounds like this is going to be um, something different. But what it really points out to me is that uh, automakers and the agencies that they use to try to like get people interested in their cars. You know, so there's two things going on. They don't know how to sell the cars anymore, how to advertise the cars anymore, and they're not quite sure where their customers are going to come from. Uh, in, the, in the near future, it's okay. But, you know, as we, everybody talks, you know, Ford themselves, Jim Hackett said, like, well, we're a mobility company. Uh, 
what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, like, and how do you advertise that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a real challenge, you know, to communicate those kinds of messages to average consumers that, you know, for the foreseeable future, at least, are still, you know, looking to buy vehicles, you know, whether it's cars or utilities or pickup trucks, you know, to get them to work, to school, to, you know, to the grocery store, wherever they need to go. You know, they just want to know what's, what's the best car or best, the best vehicle to buy for my needs, you know, that I can actually afford. Yeah, and cars now are also like they're not exactly affordable um there's certainly like you get a lot more value for your dollar than you used to even though unless you inflation adjust the money that's not really clear you know with the average car edging up towards uh, you know over thirty thousand dollars now i think but yeah uh, the average transaction price is about thirty five thousand now yeah that's all that's a lot of money but yeah. you, you do get a lot. Like, if you look at what you get for the money and you compare it even to, you know, 2000 or 1990, uh, you're, you're definitely getting more for less money. But it's still, it's, it's a lot to come up with. Um, but that's in combination with all of the other costs that a lot of consumers have now. You know, you've got the baby boom generation, which still has tremendous buying power, but they're, they're starting to age out where they're, some of them are already buying the last car they're ever going to buy. So you can't count on that huge generation for that much longer. Um, you've got everybody in the middle uh, that, you know, they'll, they'll be reliable consumers when they have to be. Uh, but there may be some lag time because the cars last for 12 years now, roughly, too. Uh-huh. Uh, so then you've got this other generation uh, coming up, younger folks who are, you know, say 30 and under. Um, and they're a very large generation as well. They just don't have the buying power yet. And so automakers are trying to figure out how to get those dollars when those people do have buying power. And on, on the, at the same time as we're shifting away, possibly, from the idea of private car ownership. You know, autonomous vehicles are you know, a, a very popular subject. And you know, are we going to have privately owned vehicles by the time these people are ready to spend forty thousand dollars on the car? We don't, we don't know. Um, and I honestly don't think we're going to have <laughs> autonomous vehicles anytime soon, uh, at least not uh, in a personally owned space. But all of those messages, you have to like boil those down. And, and just watching car advertising is it's 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 just a mess. Like, what's the last car ad you can remember? Um, well, since I cut the cord several years ago, I, I don't really see car ads anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> most, I, I'm kind of in the of, same boat. The time, when I see car ads, it's it's usually you know um, you know when I've gotten you know email notifications from car make from the PR people about you know here's our Super Bowl ad you know uh, right. r- please write a story about it you know and right. so uh, you know I, I may go take a look at it on YouTube and that's that's where if I see car ads that's usually where I see them is on YouTube. Yeah, and that, that's such a different beast, um, especially like the Super Bowl ads. Like those are flagships. Those don't necessarily actually need to convert and turn customers, you know, turn viewers into customers. Those are those are well, branding exercises. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And I was just gonna say that you know that's that's the interesting thing you mentioned. You know, the Ford Proud thing. You know, and that's not really about promoting a particular mo- nameplate. You know, it's there's this distinction. There's these two kind, two different kinds of ads. You know, you've got. Um, the you know the, the the product ads you know where they're trying to sell you a specific product 
and these brand ads where they're they're trying to build brand awareness, try, you know, trying to create uh, an image or something around the brand, uh, and that's those are very distinctly different kinds of ads. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's what Ford Proud is intended to do, especially if you've taken a look at Ford's uh, share price lately. You know, everybody's taken a shellacking, especially with the tariffs starting to bite on their materials costs. Uh, it just basically sucked a, a billion dollars out of uh, automakers over the last quarter. Uh-huh. Uh, so Ford wants to be the company you think of when you think of a car or a mobility solution or something, and that's that's what I think... Uh, Ford Proud is, is going to be. And I'm, I'm a little skeptical just because of my opinion about car advertising but and, and my opinion about what WPP in the past and, and J, J. Walter Thompson, uh, which was Ford's flagship, flagship agency for a long time, uh, has done. You know, I just like car ads are abysmal because the, the best car ads happened at a time that was so much different than now. And, and again, like best car ads are also kind of a, an opinion. Um, so we're, we're in a different place, but it's much harder because the audience is so stratified to actually, you know, push through and, and make an impression. Um, so I will, I will reserve judgment on that, but it just, it's just fascinating to watch what Ford is, is trying to do because they're trying to get out ahead of um, just making sure that people think of Ford because they need you to think of Ford. Um, and, and, you know, from your time inside agencies, uh, or an agency working for for uh, automaker PR too. Like, it, it's you got a lot of different people trying to get a lot of different messages out there, and, and usually there's that like one one ad that they're trying to put all of those into. That's that's difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a real challenge. You know, and you know, I've I've sat in, I, I you know had the unfortunate opportunity to sit in, in a few meetings where there were some of these discussions going on. You know about the the messaging, or, or you know, to you know, I, I, I both uh, being when I was on the PR side and also as a journalist, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, when we when we go in for a preview of a new product, you know, one of the you know part of the presentation will be bringing out the the marketing team, you know, to talk about here's here's who we're trying to sell this vehicle, who or who we developed this vehicle for, you know, here is our target customer, and you know. It's, it's like, who the hell is that person? You know, it's like, I, have, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, it's completely mystifying. So, you know, uh, sitting in some of these sessions, you know, with the, the marketing people are trying to explain, you know, who, who this vehicle's for and, and how they plan to promote it. You know, seeing the, the themes that they put up there, the various random images that have nothing to do, that don't seem to have anything to do with the specific product. Um, it's it's a it's a weird process that they go through, and it's definitely something that's not really in my bailiwick. Um, but you know, it's <laughs> you know, it, it it'll be interesting to watch you know in the coming years as not just Ford but every manufacturer I think are increasingly going to struggle with with how they get their messaging across about um, what their brand represents and what their you know who their who their products are for. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it is weird, and there's a lot of mumbo jumbo and uh, a lot of justification of existence. And uh, I the industry, the side of the advertising industry that I work in is, is a little bit more mercenary than that. Um, we try to be very cost efficient, and every dollar we spend, we want to try to track it and bring it back to um, an actual like 
closed sale, if you will, like you know, a, a completed transaction. And that's not necessarily the goal of these branding exercises and stuff. So it's, I watch with a little skepticism. Anyway, now that we've completely bored everyone, uh, you said you had a talk <laughs> yeah. uh, that you so, wanted to tack on to the end. Yeah, so just a little background. I was invited uh, to uh, the, the Ann Arbor Ypsilanti Regional Chamber uh, is doing a series uh, over the course of the next year um, you know, as they celebrate their centennial, uh, you know, and they're, they're going to be doing these sessions on a quarterly basis. And they invited me in for the first one to uh, do a little talk, you know, and this is to non-automotive people, um, to talk about, you know, the, the future of mobility and, and try to, you know, provide some grounding on, you know, what's, what's the reality of the, the mobility future. And so I uh, talked for about a half hour. Um, and I will also, uh, I'll put on the, uh, on the post, uh, there will be a link to the, uh, to the slide deck. So if you want to follow along a little bit, uh, and see what I had to say and, uh, you know, tell, tell, let us know what you think. All right. Well, I think that's the podcast. I mean, you're probably at the airport and I'm almost I'm home. Close to it. Let's uh, see. We should do this in the car more often. <laughs> 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 uh, if I took public transit, I'd have a lot of people looking at me like I'm a weirdo. Yeah, well, they, they do that anyway. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Um, so, all right, well, you can find us uh, at WheelBearingsCast on Twitter. Uh, no vowels except for the A in cast. Uh, I am Boston underscore auto. You are a Sam Aboyle Samid. Uh, we also have the Facebook. There's our email. Um, you know, there's a variety of ways to get our attention. So please do uh, leave us some some reviews in uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you yep, use. And, you can, we'll and you can you can find us in, in all of them if you look in Pocket Casts or Overcast or Apple Podcasts or even in Spotify now. If you just search for Wheel Bearings in Spotify, you will find uh, the Wheel Bearings podcast in there if that's, that's your chosen method of listening to podcasts. So whatever you do, go listen and let us know what you think and uh, oh, we'll uh, see one, everybody one, next week. One, one oh, hey. Uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to some of the various people that uh, at the, the events I've been to in the past week that have mentioned that they are listeners. Uh, so you know, some of the folks at Toyota, like JB uh, and Eugene at the uh, TU Automotive Conference I was at earlier this week that uh, mentioned that they listen to the show. Uh, keep listening and you know, send us a note, let us know what you think. And uh, if you are a listener and you happen to be at some event where I'm uh, doing a panel or speaking or something, you know, uh, come on up and, and say hi. Yeah, and I don't ever go to events or panels. I go weird places like the hills uh, around Aberdeen, Washington, <laughs> <laughs> where there's no cell signal and they get two flat tires. But that's a story for another time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we'll catch everybody next week. All right. Bye. Thank you again to Bob, to everyone here at Toyota. And let's get started here with our mobility future. Our first presenter is Sam Abulsamid who is Senior Analyst for Navigant Research's Transportation Efficiency Program. He leads there the Mobility Research Service. Thank you. Uh, Sam is a foremost expert in terms of this content, and that's really because of his unique background. He has 20 years experience in terms of automotive engineering. He worked in product technology communications for both Ford and GM, and he's been a widely published and consulted auto journalist. So basically, Sam actually understands the technical components of what we're talking about uh, and can communicate that in a way that is easily understood. Uh, that, that is a hard skill set. So we are very fortunate to have Sam here with us and 
because of his background, he is really the right person to set the baseline for our mobility future, to tell us what's real, what's coming, uh, what's theory and potential, what's, what's myth, what's, what's going to happen, uh, and give us a sense. So here to kick off our mobility future, please welcome Sam Abul-Samet. attention to the media in the last few years, you've probably heard about autonomous vehicles or automated vehicles or self-driving cars, and you may think that they've sprung up out of whole cloth in the last four or five years, you know, perhaps even sprung up out of the mind of Elon Musk. Um, but in fact, it's, it's not exactly the case. The idea of the automated vehicle has actually been around for many decades. Back in 1956, General Motors revealed this concept car called the Firebird 2, and there's a, a video that if you look online on uh, YouTube, you can find a, about an eight-minute promotional film that GM did back then, demonstrating this vehicle being used by a family in an automated mode, handing off control to a remote control operator somewhere, and going into an autonomous mode for a road trip. Uh, unfortunately, the technology was not really ready to do that, and, and actually hasn't been ready until really just the last few years. But in the, about a dozen years ago, uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, launched a grand challenge program, actually about 15 years ago, uh, trying to get uh, companies and uh, academics and, and so on to develop automated driving technologies uh, as part of the response to what was going on in the Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, they wanted to get automated vehicles uh, to replace having to have humans driving vehicles through dangerous zones where there were IEDs and everything. And the result of that program was three competitions over the course of four years that culminated in the 2007 uh, Urban Challenge that was held in Victorville, California. Uh, that one, after the, the original Desert Challenge, was won by a team from Stanford uh, with assistance from Volkswagen uh, with a VW Touareg. In the Urban Challenge, the team from Carnegie Mellon University uh, with support from General Motors went on to win that in 2007. And this was actually the first automated vehicle that I ever actually had a chance to ride in back in January 2008. So I've had the chance to ride in a lot of different automated vehicles over the past dozen years. And it, it's amazing how far things have come, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Three years later, at the Shanghai World Expo, GM showed this little pod called the Envy, and it was designed as an urban autonomous mobility vehicle, Envy standing for electric network vehicle. The idea was that uh, people living in dense urban cores could use a smartphone app to summon one of these vehicles when they need a ride and take them wherever they needed to go and hop out, and the vehicle would go on to pick up somebody else. And this, this is kind of the inspiration for what kind of came later from uh, the Google self-driving project with their little pod cars that you may have seen as well. And then uh, now today we have vehicles like this one. This is a, a modified Chevrolet Bolt. Uh, that's one of the development vehicles being used by GM's subsidiary Cruise Automation to develop automated driving technology for production. And the plan is for this, this vehicle to be deployed commercially in 2019 in San Francisco for automated mobility services, automated ride hailing services. The, the technology behind all of this is actually 
far more complex than, than most people realize. Let me give you a little bit of quick background here on um, what the, the levels are. You may have heard of various levels of automation that have been defined by the Society of Automotive Engineers. Level zero are vehicles of the type that we drove up until fairly recently that had no real automation at all. They were completely manual. The driver was responsible for everything. Level one are vehicles that are actually becoming quite commonplace today. Most of Toyota's new vehicles, uh, vehicles from most other manufacturers are increasingly incorporating level one capabilities as standard equipment. Level one means that you've got advanced driver assist features like adaptive cruise control that uses a radar sensor to track the distance of the vehicle ahead of you, automatic lane keeping systems, uh, blind spot monitors, and so on. But each one of those systems function independently of each other. They often come from different suppliers, and they don't coordinate amongst each other within the vehicle. Level two is when you start to bring these systems together, and this is what we call partial automation. And this is systems like Tesla's Autopilot, uh, GM Super Cruise, which is in the, the picture here, that combine steering control and acceleration and braking control. Uh, the GM system is the first one on the market that actually officially lets you go completely hands-off when you're on divided highways. So when you engage the system, when it checks that you're in the middle of the lane, you can take it gives you a signal, you can take your hands off and just sit back. You still have to watch the road, though. So this is what we call a hands-off, eyes-on, brain-on system. The next step are things like the traffic jam pilot system that Audi announced last year uh, on their new A. It's not actually in production yet, but it, uh, hopefully in 2019 it will be. This is a system that takes the next step forward, what we call conditional automation, that allows the driver to go brain off. So you're not paying attention anymore. You can do other things. But you still have to be awake and ready to take over because there's going to be situations where the system cannot function properly because of its limitations. And then level four automation is what you see from vehicles like uh, Waymo's self-driving minivans, uh, that, that cruise Volt uh, that I showed you a moment ago, and, and many others that are being developed by a wide variety of companies. And this, these are systems we call highly automated vehicles that are capable of operating completely without human intervention, but within a limited operating domain. These are the vehicles, when we start to see automated vehicles in the next few years, this is what you're going to see the most of. These vehicles are capable of being fully automated, but they cannot operate everywhere. And in fact, there are most, most places they will not be able to operate probably for many years to come. Uh, what, the, what we call level five, full self-driving vehicles, will eventually get here. Those are vehicles where you have the same functionality as level four, except they can function everywhere under all weather conditions. And what we're seeing right now is the transition from yeah, in the DARPA days and, and the last seven or eight years, uh, going from research projects for automated driving to full production engineering. And that means that they have to deal with problems like working in bad weather. When they did the DARPA project, it was in good weather conditions. It was operating in Southern California. There was no, no snow, no rain. Um, same, it's the same reason why you see most of the automated driving development going on in California and Arizona and Nevada because they don't have any weather. When you have a vehicle that has adaptive cruise control, like, like this Hyundai, uh, when you drive in wintertime, that radar sensor can get covered up with slush and it be suddenly becomes inoperative. That's not an acceptable situation for an automated vehicle. Your cameras get covered with snow or they get covered with dust if you're driving in the desert. 
those are not acceptable situations for a vehicle that's supposed to be capable of operating fully autonomously. So we've got manufacturers working on systems like this to keep the sensors clean. And these are, <laughs> this, this is actually on, on one of Waymo's vehicles. This is a system that they developed. Um, you know, for poop is one of those things that you're going to encounter in the real world. You know, it, there, there's a difference between R&D and, and doing development testing and actually having to function daily, carrying people and carrying packages around. So there's still a lot of basic fundamental engineering work that everybody has to do. And that means that before we have automated vehicles that can take us anywhere we want to go, anytime, there's a, there's a lot more work that has to go into that to make it viable uh, and really reliable and robust for day-to-day -day use. But when we do get there, which is probably going to start happening as we get into the mid to later 2020s, we're going to start seeing some transitions in the auto industry and in the, in the business. And the overall number of vehicles on the road is probably going to peak sometime in the latter half of the 2020s globally. You know, we're probably going to hit about 1.2 billion vehicles uh, in total on the world's roads. And then it's going to start to decline as we start to see more and more use of automated mobility services, which is the, curve, the, the line curve that you see overlapping the, the bar chart here. And in the latter half of the 2020s is when we expect to start seeing a real ramp-up in use of automated mobility services as these, mobility, these automated vehicles become more reliable, more robust, able to operate in more conditions, and also more affordable so that the cost of the services come down. So our forecast at Navigant Research is uh, by the mid-2020s, we expect to see uh, four to six million uh, automated vehicles a year uh, globally being deployed. Uh, in the early part of the 2020s, it's going to be in the, you know, starting in the next couple of years from the, the low tens of thousands into the hundreds of thousands in the early 20s, and then accelerating up into the mid-20s and beyond. By the mid-30s, you expect to see about half of the world's vehicles at least be capable of level four automation and, and beyond, level four or level five automation. And as part of that, uh, you know, alongside that, we're seeing a transition already uh, towards more and more use of ride-hailing services as, as the prime, one of the primary forms of mobility as a service, as we call it. And so, uh, you know, this, this is something that started happening about seven or eight years ago with Uber and then Lyft and now other companies like Grab and Didi Shusing in China and, and Get and, and many others around the world. And the, what we're, what we're rapidly seeing, especially in urban centers, where it's already very expensive, very problematic to own an individual vehicle, more and more people, although it's still a tiny percentage of the, of the total people that are, that are traveling, but more and more people are using these sorts of ride-hailing services. And you know, I'm sure probably most of you in this room have used either Uber or Lyft at some point in the last couple of years, if not on a regular basis, at least probably when you're traveling. Uh, instead of as an option to, as an alternative to renting a car. And when, in, in these urban centers, the, the need for automated, or for, for mobility services is going to become more important as we continue the transition with uh, urbanization globally. More and more people moving from rural areas or suburban areas into cities around the world. We have more and more megacities around the world. And a big part of that is going to be uh, or a, a big chunk of that is going to be taken up by automated vehicles. Most of, we expect that most of the automated vehicles that are deployed in the coming decades are going to be deployed through these mobility services 
rather than sold to individual consumers. And there's a, a number of reasons for that. Um, primarily is, is affordability, but also liability concerns. These, the, the cost of this technology is still very high, and it's going to remain high, uh, higher than obviously higher than a conventional vehicle. But at the same time, uh, there are a number of new costs that are coming along. It's not just the technology, but also a change in the way that the industry has to think about cars or vehicles. The traditional model for a manufacturer is you design and validate a vehicle, build it, sell it, and then forget it and move on to developing the next generation of that vehicle. But, and so we don't, we don't, we haven't gotten into the, the habit of providing ongoing support and updates for the vehicles once they're sold. Manufacturers will sell some service parts over the life of the vehicle. They'll do compliance recalls. But until Tesla came along and started doing over-the-air updates and providing new functionality to vehicles while they were in service, we, that was not something that was done traditionally done in the auto industry. And as we get into automated vehicles, that's something that is going to have to change because these, this is still maturing technology. It's evolving technology. And so manufacturers are going to have to provide service functional updates for the life of that vehicle. More importantly, they're going to also have to provide uh, uh, security updates because these vehicles are all going to be highly connected. And that means that there is going to be a significant risk associated with that. There's all kinds of things that can potentially happen. When you've got connectivity, there's an attack surface. And with any complex system, you can never guarantee absolute security. So there are going to be people that are going to try to attack these systems. And so the cost of that is going to require manufacturers to, um, to there, there's a cost associated with providing those updates over the life of the vehicle. And that's going to uh, cause, cause issues with affordability for, for mainstream customers. Because, you know, the, the cars are already getting very expensive. And if you're adding on these additional ongoing costs, you can either build it into the price up front or charge a subscription fee over the life of the car, both, neither of which is probably going to be an acceptable solution to most consumers. So that's going to drive manufacturers to deploying most of these vehicles through automated mobility services, except at the very high end, very premium vehicles where customers might be willing to pay those costs directly. But for most, most of us, we'll be using automated vehicles through mobility services. And so that's going to mean that the number of drivers employed in these mobility services, while it's going to continue to grow for the next you know, five to ten years, as we get into the mid-2020s and beyond, it's going to start to decline pretty rapidly because that, those, uh, those, those services are going to increasingly be taken over by automated vehicles. But there will be new opportunities for other, other kinds of jobs associated with this because those vehicles will require service. They're going to require cleaning. They're going to require sensor calibration. So there's going to be opportunities for new kinds of jobs. So as part of all this, though, it's not going to be just a straight-up transition from everybody owning their own vehicle, driving it to work, to school, wherever. There's going to be a mobility ecosystem. We're going to have these sorts of automated vehicles that uh, you can hail a ride just as you do today, except there won't be a driver behind the wheel. But there's also going to be micro-mobility. There's going to be shared bikes, shared scooters. We also need to have um, various forms of mass transit, including inner-city transit. You're still going to have airlines. You're going to have trains and so on. Um, but you're also, in cities, going to have uh, shuttles. So look at some of these low-speed autonomous shuttles, like the local Motors Ollie, the, the Navia Arma, which is actually now being built locally here down in Saline. 
uh, might someday even have something like a Hyperloop. Uh, you know, it's, it's being tested. We'll see whether the technology can actually scale affordably, but uh, there's going to be various other types of, of uh, transportation modes. And also even traditional modes like buses and subways. All of these are part of this ecosystem that we need to have because we can't just throw mass fleets of automated vehicles on the road because that's not going to address the problem of urban congestion. We need to try to right-size the, the transportation mode for every ride. You know, when you're only going a few blocks, you know, you don't need to take a car or a bus um, or a hyperloop. You know, you might be better off, depending on what the weather's like, taking a bike or a scooter. There's some very interesting comments recently from Uber CEO Garakosh Rashadi, who talked about this, you know, said that we, you know, for riders to take, to wait, you know, five or ten minutes for a car, to take them ten blocks, makes no sense. It doesn't make sense for, for Uber economically. It doesn't make sense for cities. We're better off to use other forms of mobility for sh short trips like that. And then for l longer high-density routes, again, mass transit still plays a great part. One of the issues that we've always had with mass transit is that it's costly to provide service to every to all parts of a community, especially when you know there, there tend to be certain routes that you have a lot of density. Those are cost-effective routes. But we also have a lot of areas of the city where there's not enough density to justify you know, sending a, a full bus. And so we end up having either underutilized services or transit deserts. And so having a, a mixed mode, a multimodal ecosystem that provides a, a variety of different transportation options so that and, and having and having platforms that can optimize every trip. So you know maybe what you have in the future is you have an app that you put down where you want to go and it gives you the options available and you can take the one that's going to get you there the fastest or the cheapest uh, or the, you know, the, most, uh, the most efficiently. So there, there's going to be a variety of these and we're already starting to see this happen. Recently Reach Now, the uh, mobility service division of BMW in Seattle launched an updated version of their service. They have been doing a free floating car share service in Seattle and what they've done is they've now added ride hailing as an option to that. And when you open up the new version of their app, you, it, as, as it would with Uber or Lyft, it shows you your current location. You put in what your destination is, your desired destination, and then uh, it gives you the options. It shows you. You can hail a ride. It'll get you there in 10 minutes. Or you can walk three blocks and pick up a car. It'll get you there in 15 minutes. The, the car share will cost you $10. The ride hail will cost you $15. And you can choose what's the best option for you, depending on how much time you have to your next appointment, how much you want to spend. You can pick the right one. And that, that sort of thing is going to expand to include all of these other modes going forward. So back to micromobility for a moment. This is something that's really uh, exploded in the last six or seven months. I was in San Jose in March for the NVIDIA GPU technology conference when BERT launched. On the second day of the conference, I walked out of the hotel to go to dinner, and all of a sudden there were scooters all over the sidewalk. And I had no idea where, nobody had any idea where these came from. They were completely unannounced. You know, and I, I opened up my phone and looked up bird scooters, and then I saw, you know, what, what had happened, that they had just launched this service. And it's the, in, in principle, it's a great idea. But what we need to do is we need to coordinate it with all these other services. And, we, 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 there's also safety issues, issues associated with this. Um, you know, if you've got people zooming up and down the sidewalks on scooters or on the streets, 
you know, there's the potential for all kinds of havoc to happen, and people just leaving scooters, you know, in the middle of the sidewalk. Uh, so, you know, maybe one of the things that we need to think about going forward is adding more protected bike lanes. And this actually has a number of potential benefits to them, because, first of all, it provides an opportunity for bike and scooter riders to get off the sidewalk away from the pedestrians, uh, and, you know, and also keep them separate from road traffic. So, now all of a sudden, you, know, you don't have pedestrians dodging scooters and vice versa. But it also, as we start to get into automated vehicles, having those protected lanes gives us the opportunity to also maybe physically separate the automated vehicles from the connected or from the pedestrians and these scooters. And at least, uh, uh, especially in the early years of this, as the technology is still evolving, hopefully give us a safer environment for everybody to operate in. And also, you know, as part of, you know, perhaps doing a road diet, you know, in a city, you know, doing these protected lanes, you know, can, can be a real benefit. I know certainly here in Washington County, there's been a lot of road diets done in recent years. The street I used to live on until last year went under, underwent a road diet a couple of years ago, and it, it's, it, there's a huge benefit to doing that. So, you know, the next step of the road diet is maybe adding this, these extra curves to do protected lanes for, for the micro-mobility. But as part of the overall service scheme, there's going to be a wide variety of service models. You know, you've got everything from today, we've got services like Turo that offer peer-to-peer -peer car sharing, so anybody can rent their car and put, make their car available for other people to rent. Uh, you've got services like TeslaLoop in Southern California that provide inner-city services using Tesla vehicles. Um, we've also got uh, pilots starting now. Uh, Neuro has a pilot program going on in Arizona with Kroger using this little autonomous pod um, that does not carry people. It's designed only to carry groceries. So, um, you know, we can have a, we're going to have a variety, wide variety of different types of vehicles that, you know, do everything from carrying people to just carrying goods and services. And, you know, going, continuing on that theme of, you know, different services, it's not just going to be the straight up type of ride handling services today, that we have today where you pay for ride. We're going to have things like May Mobility, you know, another company based here in Ann Arbor, uh, that are, you know, they've already got a deal with Bedrock in Detroit, and they're also expanding into Columbus and Grand Rapids soon, uh, you know, offering short, you know, fixed route services, but also soon ride, you know, uh, on-demand services uh, using low-speed automated shuttles. But there's also going to be premium services. Aston Martin recently showed a concept for an automated next-generation Lagonda sedan. And we've seen other concepts uh, in the last few weeks from Renault and from Volvo, similar ideas providing premium uh, on-demand mobility services with automated vehicles. So as part of the, the larger mobility ecosystem, a lot of other things are going to change as well. You know, traditionally, you know, when we needed fuel, we just, you know, when we're driving our own vehicles, we pop into a gas station, fuel it up in a few minutes, and we're on our way again. But if you're using automated vehicles in a mobility service, now there's uh, different kinds of demands. You, you know, in order for the service to be economically viable, you need to have uh, the vehicles in operation as much of the day as possible. It's kind of like the airline model, where airlines only make money when their planes are in the air between destinations carrying passengers and cargo. They don't make money when the plane's sitting on the tarmac. Same thing is true for automated vehicles and mobility services. So we're going to see some changes in how these vehicles are handled. You know, if there are electric vehicles, which they mostly will be, we may be using more DC fast charging. 
It may also be, uh, there's other options like battery swap. Battery swap has been tried on a couple of occasions before for electric vehicles, but it didn't, it wasn't viable because there wasn't enough scale. There weren't enough EVs and the batteries weren't standardized. But if you're talking about a city that's got a fleet of, say, a thousand automated vehicles from the same company that all have the same kind of battery in them, now you can make the charging component asynchronous from the, uh, from the, the actual operation of the vehicle. The vehicle can come in, swap the battery out in a couple of minutes, be back on the road again. Meanwhile, the battery goes on a trickle charger, and as part of that, it can also be integrated potentially into a vehicle-to-grid system where you integrate with, with local utilities to provide peak shaving on, on, the, um, on the electricity demand. And there's even potential, I think, for fuel cell vehicles in this kind of environment. Fuel cells have, been, have, have a lot of potential, but they've been problematic because of the lack of fueling infrastructure. But if you're talking about automated mobility vehicles that are operating within a, a geofenced area, as we are going to be for the foreseeable future, a fleet of, a few, a fleet of fuel cell vehicles could easily, be man, could easily be supported by just a small handful of hydrogen stations, as opposed to, for general purpose use for individual consumers, you want a, a larger spread of, of stations over a larger area so that there's always one close by. But in a city, say San Francisco, four or five hydrogen stations could easily support a fleet of autonomous mobility vehicles and keep the, get those vehicles in and back on the road and back in service very quickly. So we're also going to be think, rethinking the architecture of the vehicle. You know, we've got uh, ideas like Toyota's e-Pallet that, that uh, uh, we saw earlier, um, the Navi Arma, the Local Motors Ollie, Next Future Transportation, where since these vehicles are potentially going to be utilized much more than a traditional vehicle, instead of operating 12, 15,000 miles a year like an individually owned vehicle, we're looking at vehicles that are going to be operating 100, 152, 300,000 miles a year, depending on how much utilization we can get out of them. And rather than scrapping out those vehicles every three years uh, and, and starting from scratch, you know, you know, instead of designing vehicles that the whole vehicle is designed to last 10, 15, 20 years or more, what we can look at is vehicles that potentially the basic structure is designed to last a long time, like, again, like an airframe, and we swap out the interiors, we swap out the batteries, swap out the motors, the electronics, the connectivity, excuse me, every two, three years. Um, and then we can start to use new materials that might for the structures that are lighter weight, stronger, but maybe less recyclable, but it doesn't matter as much because they're going to last a long time and be utilized for a long time. So this year, we're starting to see the first commercial deployments of automated mobility services. Uh, May's already been operating in Detroit since May uh, with, with Bedrock. And um, Waymo, uh, which started off as the Google self-driving car project, uh, is going to be launching their commercial ride-hailing service in the Phoenix area by the end of this year. GM is planning to launch their service in San Francisco uh, sometime in 2019. Uh, another very well-funded startup called Zooks is building their own automated mobility service vehicle. Um, and the, the, the photo in the, the center bottom there uh, is actually one of their current development vehicles. It's a Toyota Highlander. But they're developing their own vehicle from scratch that's purpose-built for this application. And they're planning to launch their service in 2020 or launching in 2021. So we're going to see a whole slew of these services, but they're going to be operating in very localized areas um, and, and very limited locations for at least the next several years until the technology evolves and matures and people are really comfortable with it. 
As I mentioned, you know, May is operating in Detroit. Uh, another another variety of these types of services is something that a, another startup out of Silicon Valley is trying, a company called Voyage, and what they're doing is they're actually focusing on a particular segment of the market. They are doing they are currently doing pilots um, in the San Jose retirement community and Central Florida a community called the Villages. Uh, a lot of retirees there, predominantly retirees there, and they're providing mobility services to the folks living there. And this is one of the key drivers for the development of automated vehicles. In addition to safety and trying to address congestion concerns, we also want to provide mobility for everybody. Um, you know, freedom of mobility is important for people, especially as we get older and maybe we can't drive or you don't want to drive, um, or you know, for the young or the disabled, you know, for, for people that are blind. You know, instead of having to rely on a friend or someone to come and pick you up when you want to go somewhere, being able to just summon a vehicle to pick you up and take you where you want to go whenever you feel like it would be a huge boon to quality of life, potentially. And so Voyage is focusing on this particular sector of you know, working with retirement communities to provide mobility services. GM is preparing to launch their service. They recently, uh, in a parking garage in the Embarcadero in San Francisco, installed 18 DC fast chargers so they can minimize the downtime for their, their fleet of bolts. And, you know, as, as we look forward to how we're going to deploy these vehicles going forward, there's a lot of things to think about for cities. You know, with all of these variety of different services that are going to be available, if we just let everybody dive in, you know, as, as has been done in many cities with the micromobility uh, services already, we've already seen a little bit of the potential chaos. Or, you know, with ride hailing, with Uber and Lyft in a lot of cities, you know, some of the increase in congestion. And so what we need to do is we need to think about how we're going to manage all of these different services and try to optimize the availability of the services to provide the maximum utility for everyone while also keeping, you know, trying to, trying to minimize the, the congestion. Um, well, we need to think about things like pickup and drop-off zones, defining those, um, work, developing platforms that can allow multiple service providers to tap into that and provide optimization and, and make sure we get the right travel mode for each trip so that we're not putting too many automated vehicles on the road, but getting just, trying to get just the right amount. Uh, and at the same time, you're also providing these other options for people. So we need to think overall about you know, rethinking the car for the city. The goal of all of this is to move beyond the car as just something that we own uh, that we own as individuals that we take whenever we need to go somewhere as we get into more and more shopping cities, um, you know, trying to save energy, trying to reduce energy consumption and trying to improve safety. We, we need to rethink the role of the car in the city. So we're thinking about the vehicle architecture. We also need to think about how the city is architected to support these new forms of mobility and make it uh, more accessible and, and optimize the use for everyone. Questions? Chair, first question, let's give you a round of applause. We, we will start the second panel, or the first panel at 12.45, but let's try and get as many questions in as possible. Please raise your hand, I'll get out to you. Hi, thank you for that. That was really informative. 
Uh, my name is Susan Polly, and I run the Downtown Development Authority, and among other things, we run the public parking system. Um, and we use some of those proceeds to pay for things like transit, because we're concerned about equity. Uh, we use it to also help us with our bike amenities. Uh, with what you've proposed, do you have ideas how the private sector, who's making the money from these various technologies, would find their monies coming back to the communities who are providing the bike lanes, <coughs> providing the, the kinds of streets that you just described? Uh, otherwise, it lands on the backs of the people who live there. Uh, how can we get those various uh, mobility companies to pay for the things that they, they'll need in the right-of-way? Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. It's going to be a policy challenge for every municipality going forward. Um, uh, one of the things I didn't mention uh, is parking. You know, today um, in the United States, we have about seven parking spots for every car we have in this country. Um, and in a lot of urban centers, as much as 25% of the land mass in urban centers is dedicated to parking for vehicles that are sitting there doing nothing. And if we have this, if we do eventually have this transition to automated mobility services, we don't need to park those vehicles anymore. And so a lot of the parking space that we, a lot of the space we dedicated, dedicate to parking today can be repurposed. It can be repurposed to new residential, to uh, commercial, and, and various, or even recreational uses. And so there's, there's the potential for some new property tax revenues from those, from those, uh, repurposed, uh, land. But also for the services that want to come in and operate, uh, in a city, we need, you know, cities need to think about, you know, how are we going to handle that? And I think that it's incumbent upon those private sector services that are operating to maybe pay, you know, some portion of, of what they, you know, what, what they're generating, some portion of their revenue contribute that back to support the infrastructure. Um, you know, and particularly, you know, if you look at it today, um, you know, we, we pay for road infrastructure through fuel taxes predominantly. Um, you know, if we're using fewer cars and, you know, we're not driving more, there, there, those, those revenues are also likely to evaporate. So we need to think about how, we need to think about changes in the way we pay for road infrastructure and all this other infrastructure. Part of that may be Per mile charges, you know, you know, charge based on vehicle mile traveled or, or passenger mile traveled, uh, and transform the, the, the tax revenue system that pays for infrastructure in order to both get the road, get the road users that are utilizing that infrastructure to pay for it, uh, as part of their revenue stream. Uh, so that's going to require some significant policy changes in, in the way we do things, uh, today going forward. And we'll uh, go here to the back of the room. This is actually following right up on that. Uh, my name is John Fournier. I'm the Assistant City Administrator for the City of Ann Arbor. Um, and immediately before this, I was the Director of Parking for the City of Pittsburgh. <laughs> and so what I wanted to ask you is what specific things cities could be doing in terms of technology implementation or infrastructure to prepare for this type of mobility future. It's funny, um, recently John Kravchak, the CEO of Waymo, was speaking to the National Governors Association, and during the Q&A, one of the governors asked him almost that identical question. Uh, you know, where, where should cities or states be making their investments in infrastructure and technology to support this, these changes? And his response was, this is going to take a lot longer than you think. This is not going to be an overnight transition. Um, so, first of all, you know, we're, it's going to be a long time 
certainly I think, you know, places like Michigan, you know, we're not going to be on the leading edge of a lot of commercial deployments of this technology. Uh, it's going to be in warm, sunny locations predominantly initially, uh, particularly where you've got a very high urban density where the economics are going to make sense. But that said, you know, I'll, I'll repeat what John's comments were. You know, we need to focus on the core infrastructure, make sure our bridges and roads and, and traffic signaling systems are up to date. And then, you know, beyond that, we need to start, you know, we need to look at, there's a bunch of companies that are working on uh, transportation platforms uh, that are being designed for cities to use to integrate and coordinate the various services. So this all needs to be part of a public-private partnership. Um, you know, and there's companies like Ford, for example, as a transportation operating system they're developing. Uh, Toyota's recent announcement um, with of their joint venture with SoftBank, a part of that, I think, is developing a similar kind of platform to enable coordination of these multimodal services. Um, and so, you know, from from a sit from a municipal perspective, probably take a look at you know some of these options and look at you know maybe piloting some of these things that, or you know understand what will be required for that, you know, so that when the time comes to start deploying that, um, we can make those changes. Um, it's going to obviously require some updates to IT infrastructure in addition to the road infrastructure. Uh, but it's, it's not something that we necessarily need to think about right now, but start having some conversations with the various companies that are developing these, these, pl these coordination platforms for mobility ecosystems. We've got uh, time here for one more question. I'm Bill Billick, and with the myriad of electric vehicles coming to market, a lot of which are already using proprietary charging systems, how is the grid going to support all the demand? Is it going to continue to be hardwired? Will radiant charging have a place in the marketplace? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, well, first of all, you know, aside from Tesla, pretty much everyone else is using standardized uh, charging connectors. Most everyone is supporting the SAE combo connectors. Um, some a couple of companies are also supporting uh, a Japanese standard called Chatmo. Uh, Tesla is the only one that really has a proprietary standard. Um, but as far as supporting the grid infrastructure, you know, these vehicles, automated vehicles are going to be electrified. They, they need to be electrified because of the power demands of the automation systems. And, uh, you know, in a service model, you know, we, because as I said, we want to maximize the utilization, minimize downtime. I think that's one of the reasons why we're going to see companies taking a look at options like battery swapping as an alternative to DC fast charging to reduce the the instantaneous loads on the grid. You know, demand charges, uh, you know, for any of you that are, that are uh, operating businesses and have commercial utility services, you're probably familiar with demand charges from, from uh, DTE or consumers or some other utility. And um, that can really raise the cost and put a strain on the, on the, uh, uh, on the electrical infrastructure. So um, looking at alternatives like fuel cells, like um, battery swapping, and also vehicle-to-grid infrastructure, because you know, now, as I said, when we have enough of these vehicles um, with enough standardization, we can we have enough scale to actually start making some of these ideas that we've tossed around for the last 10 or 15 years actually viable. Um, you know, from a technical standpoint, they've been viable, but they weren't commercially viable because of that lack of scale. There simply weren't enough EVs, but now we can actually start to do that and you know, perhaps coordinate parking some of the vehicles at high demand periods, plugging those in and using those as, as buffers to shave off peak loads. 
so there's a, there's a lot of potential for coordination between utilities, the service providers, cities to make this all work better. Sam, I'm not sure we've ever felt better about how much we don't know after uh, hearing that. Can we can we give Sam Abulsamed a You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.